0: I feel like it's been too long, and I feel like I've forgotten about a podcast. Yeah. We'll see how this one goes. Yeah. Good thing we didn't take something really long. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> we may or may not understand. <laughs> so, um,
1: yeah, we're going to realize the whole the whole idea of switching to bi-weekly and then uh, reading longer things, yeah. slash reading more things. <laughs> like We have limited brain capacity. We do. Uh, Very we have, true. We have limited capacity to podcast before the quality of that podcasting begins to degrade so maybe so, it's just not actually our maybe it wasn't forte a great idea. at all yeah, it might <laughs> yeah be, or that might yeah. just be a bad idea Jack. <laughs> we may have had a bad idea well speaking of
0: bad ideas we should say it up at the beginning before we get to a listener comment that i want to bring up oh, nice. okay so it could be you dear listener um uh dan and i have decided to set up a discord i believe and we have no idea what we're doing with it yet Anyone can join. We don't have a Patreon. There are a couple channels in there. Um, We'll put the link below. If you're an asshole, maybe don't join. Anybody else join. We want to kind of know who you people are. And we've set up some channels. Dan and I don't really know what we're doing with this. So if we're wrong, there's something for readings we've been doing. There's something for current events. There's something for music, uh, movies or whatever. Uh, Some stuff for gardening, maybe. Uh, So just come hang out. If you want to vibe with Dan and I, this is probably the best place to do it. Um, maybe. If it's a complete failure, uh, there won't be a link below. So, But hopefully it's not, and there will be. So I figured I'd say that right at the beginning, if you want to come hang. Yeah, I'm fun. very
1: excited by the prospect, although I'm yeah. not a social media person per se, so I don't really know how to do these things. But I am yeah. looking forward to um, yeah, having some dialogue and some discourse. Some discourse. Working out who's out there and who's yeah. listening, because your number's on a... On a a listener counter, I guess, but there's not much more behind it, so
0: yeah, it'd be nice to know who you are. And there are some people that have been listening regularly and have been commenting, and it would be nice to get to know you people, because as of right now, yeah, Dan I still have no idea who you folks are, you kind folks. Um, So it'll be below, come hang out with us, Discord, it's in every podcaster's contract that you have to set up a Discord these days, so
1: now we have one. (laughs) Yeah, just to facilitate the trajectory that all podcasters are, are on from podcasters <laughs> to just being gamers.
0: We're, <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> um, all right, Dan, now we get into
0: the real business. Um, a listener comment. Last week, uh, I'm sure you know, Dan, uh, we put a video up on YouTube in which we discussed the UCU strikes, just kind of hung out on the couch, talked about them. Um, and at the beginning I made some kind of hateful comments that I feel like I need to address. I said something about tea, about it being tasteless, and, um, I, I was very, you were very kind to not freak out, I could tell you were upset, <laughs> however, one faithful listener, Dan, has come to my, has come to my support, and who else oh, would I that Oh, just... <laughs> I see what's happening here. I see what's happening we just, we're just, we're just ganging up on Dan. I didn't know I
1: had to bring, like character references to support well, my ideas
0: listen listen it's our good friend lex
1: uh-huh.
0: our, our first listener our first fan one might even say um and lex said and i quote read the tea chat there are like a million different flavors and varieties of tea and default british tea is the worst <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know i don't know if lex is where he's from i don't know if he has a chip on his shoulder about uh Tea in general, about England, perhaps, but um, there you go. Maybe I'm not saying it's the worst. There are a lot of herbal teas that I really don't like, but... I, I think they're just
1: different categories of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See
1: and that. Um, people use the word tea incorrectly. Oh, yeah. okay, I didn't realize tea that. Tea is a very specific thing. <laughs> and herbal teas are not it.
0: Really? What it, okay, all right, well, <laughs> sure. Um, when I first showed I up I mean, here. that's
1: not true, obviously. <laughs> but... But... But in, in, in my use of the language if you offer me tea you're offering me a very specific thing oh, and see. it has happened that people have offered me tea and then they actually haven't had like oh okay what, yeah, what like would that. people call it like English breakfast tea in air quotes um, and then I'm confronted with the agonizing choice of working out like which of these herbal tea. teas are going to be the least <laughs> disappointing <laughs> well um, I agree with
0: you on that actually I think and I respect Lex for coming to my aid um well i am drinking tea right now so uh-huh. i don't know you know maybe i'm just a hypocrite uh-huh. but um yeah there you go the tea debate i think we can put it to bed tea is good folks when i first got here i got in line like a cafe or something and i asked for a black tea the person behind me laughed <laughs> i was just like all right it's unnecessary <laughs> whatever that is rude yeah they're like bloody foreigners coming <laughs> over here what are you gonna do
1: mm. Maybe it was just with your accent it was particularly complicated. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't even know what that would sound like. No. Howdy, partner. Can I have a black tea? <laughs> They're like, you fuck. <laughs> you bastard. Um, <clears throat> all right. Well, that's the Discord out of the way. Kind of plugged YouTube. Uh, tea. Um, anything else in our uh, tweet podcasting absence?
1: I don't think so. I think we should just get into it.
0: We should get into it. Um, Dan, we've been talking about doing this one for a while. Mm. It was exciting, and we had, like we said, two weeks, so we read something a little bit longer. Hit Mm. us with it. What'd we read?
1: Uh, This week we read uh, (laughs) an essay by Mike Davis, Mm. a podcast favorite. (laughs) Um, We read his essay Old Gods, New Enigmas. Um, Mm. Which was very good. I think you and I both enjoyed it and found it very uh informative and educational and also have some questions as to um what was the overall arc and the narrative of the essay and yeah. we'll sort of tease it out as we get into the discussion i think um i suppose in broad outline um it's a kind of like historical and sociological exposition of the development of the workers movement primarily in the sort of like latter half of the 19th century and the first two decades of the 20th century um so the sort of transition from the earliest introduction of capitalism into um production and then that transition from sort of like uh small scale production into industrial capitalism as, as we saw the industrial revolution move on and what that did for the proletariat, its class composition and its development of consciousness and ability to engage as a class actor on the world historical stage. Mm. Um, So it's kind of, it's basically an advocacy for the idea of um, the concept of the, the proletariat in Marxism as being an agent who is working toward its own emancipation on its own grounds. Um, And it's sort of like a defense of that thesis and an exposition of that history of that idea. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, he's trying to not, I guess, like... Because I don't know, a lot of people, if you've never really come to Marx, like if you haven't really studied Marx and you're just kind of coming to him. Just with like the layman's understanding, I think you might kind of be like the proletariat. Isn't that like a really outdated idea? Like that's just what a lot of people say. A lot of liberals are like, okay, socialism, good ideas, but it's a little outdated. You know what I mean? Um, and he's just making an argument here. Uh, it's a couplefold, I guess. And he doesn't really seem to come to a conclusion, although I suppose throughout the essays, maybe constantly coming to a conclusion, if that makes any sense. But he's basically trying to set out to define what agency is and to say, what has caused revolutionary agency amongst the working class in the past. Um, and in a very detailed historical way, he kind of shows different examples of what, you know, uh, has brought about revolutionary agency and not so much what could cause it today, but is it possible today? Um, and he basically his conclusion. If there is one, is it better be? So let's just say yes. <laughs> yes. Hopefully it is still possible. Um, and, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Every time we come to Mike Davis, every time I read something by Mike Davis, I'm always impressed. I'm always like, I don't, for some reason I always think of him as like someone kind of outside the Marxist sphere. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because mainly he writes like Verso books and stuff, but I didn't realize he like went to UCLA and studied to study with Robert Brenner. He talks all about Ellen Meekson's Wood in this. Um, I'm always impressed. And this is funny. This is a funny one because it's like looking at it now. This is way too long to be an essay, but it's like not quite long enough to be a book. So it just kind of seemed like he had a lot of things to say, and he wanted to do a lot of research, and he just did it. And I, don't know, I respect him for it.
1: Yeah, I think there's something particular about Mark Davis where his breadth of, breadth of interest and mm. his sort of broad knowledge, but also his willingness to research very widely and broadly um, makes him stand out as somebody who from reading this essay, is very definitely a Marxist and wants to hold with uh, core (laughs) Marxist ideas. But because he sort of, uh, I guess, seeks to create a Marxist analysis of so many different aspects and elements of the world, it makes him a very enlivening and interesting thinker and somebody who's very much sort of escapes the trap of feeling like he's speaking in sort of stilted and out of date terminology yeah. and engaging in uh debates which are a bit stale and sort of like um myopic i suppose yeah in the way that they're sort of like that some debates within marxism have a tendency to be they're very insular and inward looking whereas like mike davis's academic research and um theoretical work is sort of very like open and outward looking Mm. to speak in very broad terms, I guess. Yeah.
0: It's very much like he's not really in the trenches of academia, academic warfare, right? Which is extremely refreshing. And he does seem (laughs) with some occasional dunks on Althusser, he's mainly bringing out the positives and everybody that he brings up and, um, seems to be doing so for application's sake, not for like siding with any one side, I guess. So, yeah, 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 it's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, uh, <laughs> should we start out by kind of maybe talking about what he thinks agency is and how he defines it? And yeah, I guess just what it is. I mean, he starts out by uh, using Ellen Meeksons-Wood's definition of agency as, and this is her talking, the possession of strategic power and a capacity for collective action founded in the specific conditions of material life. And then Davis goes on to say that he would add to that and he would say the capacity is developable. Um, and it's a capacity for self-making, which I think are two very important, uh, contributions. Um, yeah, just basically what, what Meekson's Wood says is the power, the strategic power for collective action. Um, that's one important thing. The other important thing is that it's based in the material circumstances of life. And then what Davis adds, obviously is very important that it's, you can develop it. And he's basically saying that you shouldn't be developing it from outside, but that it can be self-developed. That's... One of the very important things about it, I guess. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, he's very much in the tradition of Marx in terms <laughs> of like belief in the self emancipatory quality of the working class, and also Hal Draper's emphasis on that aspect of Marx being mm. central, and also uh, Draper's analysis of Marx as saying that, or um, the essential theoretical contribution of Marx being this idea of. Um, socialism coming from uh, uh, below and not being something imposed by theoreticians from above, you know. Mm. Um, And Mike Davis does strongly reiterate in the early stages of this essay when he's talking about Marx's conception of class, he's sort of saying that like, it's not that Marx is trying to find an agent onto which which can be utilized by his sort of high-minded socialist ideals to actually implement his conception of what the future society would be, which, yeah. in, when, we, if, when we look back to the reading that we did of How Draper from socialism from above, socialism from below, that's kind of what um, Draper says. Um, Ferdinand Lasalle is doing, like Lasalle is one of the people, first people to look to the workers' movement and try to in, sort of like combine socialism with the workers' movement to build this mass movement and to build this mass party. But in a lot of ways, it's still serving his instrumental uh, desires to be able to make the world in the way that he imagines it happening whereas uh, Marx, Draper and Davis are very much in this vein of the proletariat will if it's able to by which I mean if history allows and whatever like all these things are contingent I only say it's able to because it has the capacity to, but it's not in any way inevitable, which is one of the things he's really keen to push back against is this sort of like inevitability of the proletariat's um, mm. accession to world power kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, and also the necessity to
0: abstract when you're talking about the working class as well, which yeah. I thought was really interesting, because just to kind of quickly say, what, to go off what you were saying, <clears throat> when Marx was developing this idea of the proletariat, he did have to abstract a way to make a point, because otherwise... I don't know, this is just very practical, like otherwise you just get down in the weeds and it's like, well, what about this person? What about that person? What about all of this? What about this specific struggle? And you need to abstract away. um, As, you know, I think we'll get into when we talk about the nature of the proletariat, it it necessarily kind of does through its own emergent qualities. But um, yeah, we'll see Davis, long story short, do that in this as well in modern times.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. In a lot of ways, what Davis is trying to do here, I think is... um, take some kind of offerings that Marx gives for what the role of the working class and the proletariat might be to the development of history and the ultimate overcoming of the capitalist mode of production. But it's kind of like <laughs> extrapolating from things that are offered by the early Marx and reading between the lines to some extent of the things that Marx says about class um in his later writings particularly in capital but he's also suggesting that there is in just like many of marx's contributions to uh, theorizing there are a great many gaps like things got in his way he got into intellectually interested in other things like obviously he had much greater aspirations than he was able to actually ever put down into uh, his final sort of like collection of works you know yeah. um so there's an extent to which what davis is doing here is kind of like taking marx's assertions about the working class combining them with sort of like a sociological and historical reading of what actually happens and sort of like explicating a description of the history of the working class in a sort of a sort of ideal type i suppose it's like the here is the sort of fundamental historical reading of this stuff presented in a series of like aphorisms i suppose or sort of like declarations about what a sort of idealized reading that's not to say a non-true reading but just yeah. like a very kind of like um yeah like a yeah a a sort of reading of class of an ideal type an ideal socialist type of what the class is and what its role in history is kind of thing
0: yeah which i think we all fall victim to all the time whenever we talk about this magic word of the proletariat right because it is like how can you square the needs of like some schmuck pouring pints in england with the needs of like someone working in a sweatshop in say like Bangladesh or something yeah. like that, or someone living in like the hyper uh, extractive slums of like Lagos or yeah. something like that, right? And I feel like
1: that's one of the things which you know when you were saying before about you try and bring up conceptions of the proletariat now, and people are like, isn't that a yeah. sort of old world idea kind of thing? <laughs> Surely that's disproven by history. But then also it's still it's also a kind of like that reading of the class composition of the world now. And then if you try, it's basically that lack of belief in the existence or the capacity of the working class now kind of stems from this idea of if you wanted to actually decide who was going to make the change in the world that you want to see, sure, sure how could you imagine wrangling these people into a, mm. a social force that could actually do that? Whereas what Marx and what Davis are saying is like, no, like history under the specific and the correct circumstances with the correct agency and action taken at the specific times will create those kind of bonds and will create those ties and will create a broader and wider larger movement with sufficient consciousness and capacity to achieve that stuff but it's not something that can be done by any one schmuck even if you are (laughs) Ferdinand LaSalle and you're the sort of greatest orator that um the workers' movement has ever known, right? <laughs> the fanciest Not man. the best jeweler, clearly. <laughs> oh, like... <laughs> my
0: God. Jesus.
1: Um,
0: Get the Lasalians after us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's remember Jack. We're only allowed to make enemies of groups that there could only be one or two of in the like world. Like blanquiists. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I sure. mean, I, there probably are quite a lot of Lasalians and blanquiists in the world. They just it don't know that yeah. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Um, I would thought
0: that maybe we should just go through... Because we haven't said yet that he does have seven theses, that he... Again, this is a very odd essay. If it is an essay, it's very odd in its structure because he has seven theses to prove his points about agency. But the way that he goes about writing it is he has these... He has his theses, which, like, he'll go... He'll say one, and it's in italics, and then he'll just have, like, several pages of historical proof, but not even proof for it. And then there's another bit of italics, like a sub-theses, and then it's, again, more historical proof,
1: and that's more or less the entire essay. I I find myself trying to work out whether um <laughs> <that> did not work <laughs> I found myself trying to work out whether the sort of sub theses theses were actually re- written as theses or whether we just italicized the first chapter of each like section first paragraph of each section yeah i know there was a lot of like specific information condensed into each of those italicized sections yeah um but to sort of draw them out as like pure sub theses is difficult because It is actually a narrative that's there is a narrative woven through this entire essay. These theses do lead on to one another, kind of thing, and also those sub theses do lead on from one another as well. Yeah, Um, but you're correct. Yeah, you're right. Like that, it's kind of like a he's making some semi declarative statements and offering Mm. quite detailed historical sociological evidence for them. I I mean, like, if you if you if you just want, like, we can't possibly. give you all remember explain <laughs> uh sort of like put in context every person or event or movement whether contemporary to the time or historic or subsequent in history we can't like explain all of those like um so just take it from us there's a great wealth of uh um very interesting detail in this essay good wealth yeah. i would
0: i almost wish that more uh essays were kind of written like this Because it was, like, he was just like, I mean, I know what I want to say, and I have all of the proof to it, but weaving it into, like, a coherent narrative isn't necessarily for me. And a structural narrative, I mean, because there is a narrative, obviously, here, and each point does lead on from the last, but structurally, it's very much just like, I don't know, here's what I want to say, so I'm just going to say it, here's all your proof. It's almost like a bullet point. Like, I wonder how the essay would read if you only read the italics. It would be very funny. There wouldn't be much proof, and it would just kind of be, like, him just saying stuff, but... um, you could do Yeah, that. it
1: would be that you would come away being like, here's this person writing this very metaphysical conception <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of what the class is, kind of thing. Like, this can't possibly exist in reality, you know? It's just all these yeah. declarative statements. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Um, but, so I don't know if we're actually going to get through all seven. And I think when you talk about one, you kind of wind up talking about all of the other ones. But to just start us off, I think we should start with his first thesis, which is about the radical nature of the proletariat. Um, basically says something along the lines of the proletariat was radical change. Change? Chains. Um, and he goes on to basically, throughout the entire essay show, that uh, because it has these radical needs and these radical uh, like oppression placed upon it, it is the only class, we've all heard all this before, that is in a position to actually be progressive. The bourgeoisie is always conservative um, just because of its class uh, nature. Composition is the word I'm looking for. Um, And because the proletariat is placed in this, you know, shitty – these shitty circumstances, it's the only one that can actually see the future for what it is. And it's the only one that can actually see its class for what it is, right, and actually act in its own uh, Mm -hmm. nature. Um, And he goes on to basically just give proof for this about how um, industrialization and the creation of this proletariat has led to, like, the collective worker and how your needs aren't only your needs. They're everybody's needs. Well, everybody – in your class. And it's almost like if you really wanted to find the proletariat, you can kind of just look backwards and be like, well, who has these needs? Who has these radical needs? <clears throat> and you'd come to some, I think, interesting conclusions. Maybe if your chad friends who, who were like, well, yeah, socialism is a little outdated for me. No such thing as a proletariat anymore. Where are all the factories? First of all, tell them all the factories still exist. They're just not in their backyards. And secondly, maybe be like, do a little class analysis with them your friends will hate you and they'll think you're a nerd but you'll be right you can be like well look at all these people which is the most important (laughs) thing exactly you'll be right you can go home and sit in front of your computer and find your friends on twitter or on whatever and be like i own my friends Yeah. yeah oh god yeah yeah, we should just have an owned channel. Yeah. Who did you own today with facts <laughs> and logic?
1: Um, but I think you... Everybody's obliged to own one person. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like exactly. It's like Chairman Mao <laughs> declaring people will kill so many mosquitoes in a moment. It's your time. Yeah. Um, the true socialist practice, as we all know. <laughs>
0: Still mosquitoes, though, too. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, you'd come to some interesting conclusions if you do this kind of backward thinking about, like... I don't know, you can even just do it, I hate to say this, but with, like, specific people that you know, it's like why is it that all the people at my crummy job have the same radical needs that I do? And it will kind of calm you down and talk you off the ledge a little bit because like, I think for a while in the lead up to Trump's election, I was really stressed out because I was like, why are all these people acting against their interests? Why are all these people voting for Trump? And then I was like, wait a minute, let's do some class analysis. These people aren't like workers. (laughs) Like most of these people aren't workers necessarily. They're like petty bourgeoisie, As we'll get into the most wretched of all of the people in terms of they're being pulled two different ways. Um, but yeah, class analysis is very helpful. And I think that if you answer this question of who has these radical chains, as he kind of tries to do here, um,
1: it'll be helpful in
0: illuminating.
1: Historically, not just now. <laughs> I think one of the things I was expecting from this essay, which I thought was there to begin with, and then I'm not sure whether it is now, <laughs> is a sort of division between the sort of historical things you can say about the class and the proletariat in history, and then an application of those theories to actual specific historical contexts. I say this because there is something... Um, well, I mean, you've pointed out and Davis points out at the beginning of this essay that, like, industrial workplaces haven't disappeared. They've just mm. shifted geographically. And even in the West, there are still mass workplaces where large numbers of people work. Um, but still, a lot of this essay... Or at least this first section of this essay is still predicated on this idea that capitalism comes about, and it first starts to influence the class relations of sort of pre-industrial society. Right, you 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 begin to see um, disciplining by the market and the adoption of the necessity to work to market imperatives internal to the kind of like production. Um, the, uh, the 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 means of production that exists at the time by which I mean, like small scale production in the household, uh, and sort of also like the existence sort of uh, artisanal work that's done by sort of like artisans and their apprentices in cities or whatever, mm-hmm. who are like the red radical, um, agents of the, of the early capitalist revolutions, like 1848, maybe not like a proletarian revolution, but like capitalism is in existence and having an effect. Um, and mike davis is putting a lot of emphasis on this transition from that sort of mode of production to moving toward industrial production in factories and what the development of those sort of like large scale workplaces does for both class consciousness but also um the means by which the class has to exercise its uh power and to influence the to to, to um wage the class struggle i suppose Mm. um so i don't really know like how how much we're talking about like an essential trans essential transition that happens uh that makes the proletariat what we think of it as being and whether something has been lost by the industrialization in the west or whether it's just a different phase of um it's just different conditions under which the class struggle is operating clearly it's we, we still live under capitalism the the sort of class relations of capitalism are still as they were in the early and mid 19th century um but i i was hoping for and didn't get a very sort of definite declaration as okay what happens next you know what happens after the fall of industrialization or what happens after 1930 or whatever whenever this essay finishes i mean um i don't know how whether you feel uh that was something that was lacking or something you were looking for maybe you weren't looking for it in the same way that i was i guess
0: i think I, yeah i think i was in the same way i was kind of hoping for a last sentence that was like and here's what wraps it up nicely yeah. instead of just being like things are bad Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i think i guess we've just got to consider as you're saying that like the contradictions of capitalism exist in like a quote-unquote deal industrialized society still especially with, like, the ever-shifting burden of costs from the bourgeoisie onto like, workers, even if you're not working in a factory or whatever, that still exists. And I I guess the thing that's lost, quote-unquote, is, like, the ability to politically organize. Like, another one of his theses in this talks about cities, and the second one talks about, like, factories and unions. It's, like, these very political places and how the shop floor is, like, an extremely political place or whatever. So maybe what's being lost is the ability to... Um, organize easily because the ability to organize is still there. And I think that, like, in his second thesis, what I really took away from it is that, like, wow, I'm glad we read this after reading Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy because, like, he talks about how this political nature, anti capitalist nature exists in all workplaces. And I wrote in the margins, I was like, something about uh, <laughs> needing a party because, like, the, the, it, I've been stressed about Mike McNair's strategy insofar as organizing a political party seems difficult. And this made it seem like once you do the grunt work of actually having a place for people to go, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's definitely doable, it isn't so much about creating energy as harnessing the energy that already exists. So I suppose, yeah, it's kind of something has been lost, but it's the easiness. It's the ease that's been lost. Because there's constantly—we've bought this some on the show before—they're like— anti-boss sentiment is rife in your workplace no matter where you work. No matter if you're, like, a real estate guy making a lot of money, but you still have a boss or you're working on a shop floor holding pig feet or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, this political organization of the workplace exists everywhere, even if it takes the form of just, like, man, I hate it when my manager and supervisors tell me to do this. Wouldn't it be better if we just organized everything or if they just let it, let us alone, right? So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I suppose what is... Um just occurred to me now what's kind of brought out by davis is there is this transition to um industrial production in factories but it's slow it's not you flip a switch and suddenly (laughs) there's a role for everybody in a factory every form of labor is suddenly automated or de-skilled and everybody suddenly finds themselves working in mass workplaces you know Mm. like in the 19th century there's still vast numbers of people like how many domestic servants were there in England at yeah. like the end of the nineteenth century? Like, it's a vast, vast proportion of the population, mm. and there were still people working in like, um, like the same kind of artisanal ways that they used to before, kind of thing. So, I think one of the things that Davis is bringing out is that like, there are um, sort of like the the class comp the cl- class composition and an analysis of capitalist society and proletarian resistance and struggle within the class struggle, like, has these, like, focal points, you know. There are certain, like, spear tips where conditions are more apt, more opportune, Um, and there's an extent to which when one looks to the industrial working class in this period, it's not like these are the only people that can make the revolution. These are the only people that have any right to be on the the barricades, you know, or, like, on strike or uh, being... Uh, like members of the revolutionary party it's simply that like the conditions under which this particular section of the working class work are the ones most opportune to socialist organizing or rather the the ones that develop most readily radical class consciousness Um, and i think whenever one looks at i mean even even the way the sort of like I sort of read or come across quotes from Lenin where it's sort of like, well, it's not like these are the only people we're interested in. Mm. It's just that we're we're interested in the industrial working class in Petrograd or rather because yeah. like that's the best place for us to take action at any specific time. You know,
0: that's a really good point. And um, then and he, the same
1: is true of now, right? Like, exactly. Who knows? Like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and he also he you know talks about. The myth of the Bolsheviks is this hyper-centralized party when he talks about how Lenin was like, no, get, just get everybody into it. Yeah. Do your own thing. Like once there's this kind of level of extreme democracy where people actually just come into the party and organize themselves, let them come to us with their demands because like – that's just a good way of organizing. A bad yeah. way would be hyper-centralized, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there's a point toward the end of this essay where he's talking about the Bolsheviks and saying that one of the reasons why people are so heavily drawn to the Bolsheviks in 1917 was because they were the most internally democratic party. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And there's a quote from Praja where he's saying that what was lost in after 1920 was that sort of like spirit of internal democracy, which is the thing which is like radically curtailed the working class's ability to operate in the way that they had done in 1917. You know, it was that what was lost in the sort of like de-democratization of Bolshevism. Yeah. Um, And what made it so appealing was like, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. He pulls, he's really pulling a lot and from and developing Rosa Luxemburg's ideas a lot in this I found. Um, And especially kind of what you're saying, he brings up the mass strike as something that she developed Um. About these kind of like ups and downs, what can crudely be seen as like ups and downs in class consciousness and like these spirit tips of moments when like everybody is uh ready to go and ready to roll and ready to rock, um, yeah, I don't know and sometimes i get a little uncomfortable with that like at, at the same it's like it's very freeing because it's like don't worry about it everybody has these you know anti-capitalist notions within them everybody gets it it's just about like it's almost like where in the business cycle do you fall in terms of like you know how radical or is everybody going to be but it's all it almost it almost a crazy person would say dan that it's, it could almost be like accelerationist in the sense of like well you just got to wait for a big downturn and obviously, that's not what Rosa Luxemburg was saying. And obviously, that's not what Mike Davis is saying. Um, and that's where we turn to McNair, I guess, right?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a lot of ways, Mike, what Mike Davis is um, emphasizing at a certain point, and they say, we're, we're going to lose track of which, bit, which which sections we're talking <laughs> yeah, about. We're it's just do. become like, at some point, at some point, when he's talking <laughs> about something, he does this. Um, he makes this point stemming from arguments made by Marx that, like, what's important to developing, like, proletarian consciousness radical consciousness is not constant immiseration Mm. it's not like just horrible situations all the time it's when things are given and then taken away exactly when you are developing class power and then it's lost either because the bourgeois there is some downturn in the economy and the bourgeois bourgeoisie has to strip away the things that the proletariat has has hard won from them Mm. or like there's some other sort of crisis in organization. People felt they had power and then they lose it. It's Mm. then that they're most agitated, you know. It's this kind of like peaks and troughs in people's um, almost subjective experience of how the class struggle is developing, you know. It's not a sort of objective analysis. At X point you get exactly some such and such situation. And I suppose you can bring it back to Rosa Luxemburg and when we were reading The Mass Strike, Rosa Luxemburg talks very much about these things being like um like over determined right like yeah. it's it's not like you get to a specific point and then the pendulum tips and suddenly you have whatever like there are so many different determining factors mm. that any one of them might have been causal but like the struggle happens at so many different levels and it's not just economic but it's also political and it's social yeah. and it's about people's living conditions as well as their exactly. working conditions and it's about their conception of the past as well as the future and like there's so much going on that you can't really like pin down the perfect map <laughs> exactly yeah yeah it's such a sort of like yeah vastly over determined system
0: well and that's I think speaks to the importance of what Mike Davis says here and I think why Rosa Luxemburg's I like why that idea of her why what she says is so important is because like. You need to recognize the overdeterminedness of the working class and its struggles. Otherwise, you're never going to successfully politically organize. If you just make it about the economic struggle, you're just going to have a union, and then that's just going to be a union. But, like, when when at some point in this, Mike Davis uses the example of what you were saying about all of these, like, um, servants, I guess, or, like, housekeepers who, you know— Okay, it's easy to organize in factories, but what about this, like, huge influx of, like, domestic workers in England in, like, the 19th century? Like, why were these people so radical, right? Like, why were there always, like—why at the beginning of the French Revolution was there the Women's March on Versailles uh, because of bread riots? Why were there, like, fuel riots, always led by women, um— because they're the ones tending the house, they're the domestic servants, and they don't have, like, access to the basic things that they need to do the literal social reproduction, right? And so he basically says you need to keep in mind this overdetermination because it isn't just about wage labor and stuff. Well, it isn't just about one specific thing. Um, And so when you're kind of, like, having this analysis of the working class, you need to keep all of its grievances in mind. Um, And this is something that we came across in the Mike McNair, and this is why he basically was talking about, right, like, You can't just focus on the people in factories. You can't even just focus on the people with jobs. You need to focus on the community of the working class, more or less, is what he's saying. Um, And reading this, I really got a uh, sense of, like a cybernetic sense of the law of requisite variety because it really is the only way you're ever going to be able to respond to the crisis of capitalism or just the monster that is capitalism is by having enough answers to all of the problems that it throws at us mm-hmm. and the only way to do that is to speak to everybody's problems and again it's funny because that seems like a big headed like you know like almost academic thing to say but then when you get down to it it's like how can we help the working class it's by helping the working class yeah yeah I mean like
1: <laughs> it's really interesting I had not thought about it ever like that before I think there's some real truth in it that like the the reason why the emancipation of the working class is the job of the working class itself is because like the only force that can have requisite answers mm. to all of these problems is also the force which is experiencing those problems. It's only exactly, the working yeah. class that can meet the working class's needs. No sort of small scale party from above can come and have answers to all of come <coughs> and have answers to all of the problems of the working class kind of thing no Mm. no party from above can come and institute socialism because Mm. like the prospect of radically transforming society is one so complex um, that it requires a force that has similar complexity Mm. and variety to it
0: yeah that's one thing that's got me thinking because i know we were talking before we started recording about like what point he was trying to get out with his fourth thesis which is all about cities um and I suppose it is maybe it has something to do with that. It has something to do with the law of requisite variety in that cities are just by their nature, and this is gonna sound obvious, but like the biggest hyper uh concentration of members of the working class out there, and because of that it's the biggest hyper concentration of working class problems, right? Yeah. So if you go out into the suburbs, you know, you're gonna have people complaining about like streets and uh streetlights and you know well more than that, obviously, but like socialism is he says born of cities but that is also not to say that like you can't find socialists outside of cities yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. well
1: as he say that like the there's a certain period of history anyway like the biggest um successes of the labor in england the biggest successes of the labor movement of union building what may have been in like welsh mining villages in Mm. the valleys kind of Mm. thing but like the true hotbeds of socialism were always in the cities yeah, the, the sort of the statement that he's he's claiming, um, and as you said, and it com- it comes back to this kind of like overdetermination aspect because it's it's th- the, part of the narrative that's threaded through all these sections. If point two is on like factories and unionism, and point three is on like um, mass strikes, and point four is on the cities, kind of thing. Like um, it's the 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 the. The first political act, let's say might be the formation of a union and a mm. strike which comes about because people are so um are local gathered together in such large numbers in factories that they have this conception of themselves as a class of the f- class power that they have of the of the potential that they have to actually control production you know and also have this possibility to both discuss their grievances together but also because they're forced into such um tight working spaces like the conditions of work become most inhumane. Mm. But then also the a strike doesn't just affect the people on strike. It affects all of the people who are dependent on the wage of the people who are on strike. So it becomes a social thing rather than just an industrial thing. Hmm. And also he also talks about strikes as having this like political politico-moral dimension, which is Mm. like it binds people together in this moral commitment, of this sense of solidarity to one another, which extends far beyond like um, and then later on, he's talking about in, in, the centrality of internationalism and the history of international, internationalism in the workers' movement, and how some of the most important consciousness building moments of the late 19th century when it came to the building of the international workers' movement were like campaigns in Europe for mm. the Haymarket martyrs yeah. or whatever, or like in the 20s or 30s, like campaigns to save Sacco and Vanzetti all the way in the world kind of uh, pronunciation of the name. So that's, no, it's like, just a yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> So it's those kind of like non-utilitarian acts of solidarity, mm. both internal to your community because you're bound to community by moral uh, commitment, but also moral commitments that then extend from that across the world. Mm. Um, and what's more, when it comes to cities like this, it's over like people are forced into working conditions which are extreme but also forced into living conditions which are equally horrendous and extreme and so there becomes this link between the political and the domestic and the struggle between with your boss but also with your landlord and with the the city and with how the city is policed all of these things fall into this very complicated nexus of mm. uh radicalization um and as we say, like massive overdetermination, kind of th- overdetermination. Yeah,
0: yeah you've got me thinking a bit about just like the role of the organizer then, because it's like if you kind of come at uh, what should socialists be doing and the role of like the party and all of that from kind of any other angle of the you know other than an understanding of capitalism that is overdetermination of r- the problems of the working class, you're gonna come across like an asshole and be really like unapproachable and so i suppose maybe the role then of the organizers and this is just something maybe this is entirely wrong but it it just got me thinking maybe the role of the organizer then is to lay out this overdetermination of people's problems and lay out their problems for them but then show them that the root where the root of these problems come from right um because even though there is an overdetermination of everything it can't all basically i'm not going to say all a lot of it can be traced back to wage labor right um
1: yeah, I don't know. There's just a thought I had just really quickly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's somebody's responsibility to narrativize these things. Mm. Um, and there are sections in this where he talks about people's capacity to control the narrative. I mm. think in that instance, he's talking about like, who can lay claim to um, radical traditions? Like who can yeah. who can claim themselves to be most in line with the, like the American Revolution or the French Revolution? <laughs> who can lay claim to these sort of like... Um, sort of radical republican or democratic demands you know but i guess that the idea extends more broadly like who can craft a narrative that speaks most broadly to these issues but sort of also contextualizes them and it doesn't have to be like you can simplify the narrative toward something which is more um universal i suppose which is kind of what's happening when you have these like moments of mass solidarity right like people Mm. are recognizing their the universality in their particularity Uh, but also there is a sort of counter movement which is not the organizer organizing people but it's the kind of like the section when he's talking about the development of culture Mm. it's like there was this movement of radical education of the working class like the working class were really intellectual and they were really excited by new developments in the sciences um they would go to public lectures and they would there's a there's an account where he's talking about some kind of intellectual who's been giving lectures to um i don't know public audiences and he soon decides realizes he shouldn't condescend to the working class because they are some of the most uh potentially well-informed members of the audience kind of thing so i think there is also this kind of like in the sort of Davis thesis, there is also this tendency or this trend for the working class to seek answers to those questions, kind of thing, to mm. understand the world in some ways. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how those things all just happen. I When he was talking about how, like, some of the best inventors of all time have been your simple handyman. I forget what invention was, was he was talking about where there was the guy who developed something first, but he couldn't afford the patent. Yeah, was it was some like like
1: kind it. of, like, spinning jenny or, like, I don't know <laughs> what, shuttle, <laughs> some kind of thing. shuttle thing for a, a loom. Yeah, or I think the
0: one thing that that section was missing for me was just an understanding of the general intellect because it almost seemed like you're shifting the, like, wow, Elon Musk invented the Tesla to, wow, Joe Schmoe invented the Tesla yeah. before him. Whereas I, 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 in reality, I think that, like, an understanding perhaps does need to be made that, like, it is all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? But those giants are all of the
1: working class. Yeah. Yeah. It did seem a bit folksy, that point. It <laughs> did, sort of, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it also seemed to... There is a reading of it. If one came from it with a different ideological framework, one would read it as being like, look at these working class entrepreneurs, like yeah. bettering themselves and yeah. their conditions, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Although the perfect counterexample to that is the person who couldn't afford the patent on the thing yeah. that he invented because he was too poor. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter who <laughs>
0: invented it. You know, it's not like anyone has ever had an idea that was like the first idea. Everything else is just building off of that yeah. idea. You know yeah, what
1: yeah, I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a fair point to say that, like, um, it was members of the proletariat who were fundamental to some of the technological advances that we recognize as the industrial revolution. And it wasn't like a pauperized working class who were at the whims of these great new industrialists who were Mm -hmm. like the, the driving force of the industrial revolution. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. It is the workers and not all proletarians in this period of time were um, de-skilled and, Uh, lacking in technical ability you know they were still incredibly technical workers one of the things that the factory did was it brought people together but it actually brought together loads of people that had lots of technical uh, skills and knowledge about the work that they did and that knowledge couldn't be well captured by the bourgeoisie or by management or what have you it couldn't be compartmentalized and separated from the mass of the the mm. workforce, and so some of the most radical unions at the time were engineers who um, had all of these skills, um, and all, and but could main t- maintain them and contain them, and so they benefited from all the consciousness-building aspects of yeah. the industrial revolution. But we're still
0: so what you're saying is we need to get rid of the division of labor. Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> no, we just need to get rid of the universities. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. There we go. Okay. All right. Um, yeah going off that or radically
1: democratize the universities or that
0: going off that idea of like of proletarian culture and stuff i was really glad that he got into a discussion on what proletarian culture is and he talks about you know the spd the thing you always hear about like they had chess clubs and hiking clubs and you remember when we when we had the socialist uh checkers club or whatever which is really cool but he takes kind of a slightly different bent on it in that like Proletarian culture can't just simply be the negation of all things bourgeois, and he says that like when you see an actual development in class consciousness come out of this kind of proletarian culture building, it is because it's almost utopian because it recognizes its class position and is creating these structures that are um, maybe hints of the future to come or dreams of the future to come more more likely. But he also has an interesting idea where he kind of again, and this is why you kind of can't really talk about each one of these theses individually because they all tie back together because he eventually will tie this back to the idea of he doesn't say this outright but what we were just saying about the law of requisite variety because he basically says that like in order to confront the bourgeoisie and capitalism in general you need to fight on every possible terrain Not just every like on every terrain right and that includes culture and that includes obviously the economic sphere it includes the political sphere but it's really important to recognize you know as i said that that includes culture um it was interesting, I know that we bought this up a, a long time ago about, like, how the working class kind of set up a lot of these institutions because they were excluded from some of them, like fox hunting, I don't know, some crap. Um, but it is interesting, his idea here of, like, you need to think about this, about developing culture in a sense that is more utopian and is more like, well, how would we like things to work? Not necessarily just chess but without the bourgeoisie, right? Like, it's not just chess without your boss. It's like, how would we like to enjoy this activity if we were given uh, our druthers, right? If we could design it however we wanted, if there was no class.
1: Yeah, there's a point where he... I've forgotten the guy's name. Litka, I think? He he Hmm. quotes from this guy who did a big... He did a very famous study of this kind of... Exactly, this sort of, like proletarian culture that developed particularly in Germany and within the SPD. And he's saying that like this guy's thesis is that like, it's not that the, this new culture is going to someday overthrow the bourgeoisie, but rather Mm. he's making, he makes a very kind of like a prefigurative case, right? It's like they are developing some of the cultures and attitudes of the future bourgeoisie, of the future (laughs) proletariat and of the future society. But one of the it sort of brings me on to one of the interesting things that I found in that culture section, was a kind of a contradiction to some extent, and a contradiction that we, I think we've kind of come across before a little bit, but between the the building of a working class culture, which is almost instrumental in that it's designed to build a new socialist person, you know, it's to build for one, it's to build disciplined fighters for. The class struggle, so it comes to these ideas of like um, people's involvement in sport because it's kind of uh, mm. building physical pas- capacity and it's a little bit martial and it's kind of like organizes people and gets them to work together or like uh, the, the cultural activities of intellectualizing it's sort of building people's mental capacities or um sort of like commitment to sobriety that was in some of these workers organizations as kind of like building more competent uh sort of party apparatchiks or whatever Mm -hmm. you know um so there's that kind of like instrumental aspect of it which is very kind of like directed almost by an organization and by a party and then there's the more kind of just like building the social activities, the kind of like social drinking and giving people a space Mm. to just hang out together, you know, and sort of do things that are not necessarily minded toward the day-to-day class struggle, but it's more kind of that aspect of like providing for people things which are prevented them from accessing under capitalism, but also just like building a communality. I suppose both have their own, make their own contributions to the struggle for socialism i guess but it feels to me a little bit of a contradiction in terms of like uh, those two strands and how they play together i guess
0: Mm. yeah yeah no absolutely (coughs) i think that kind of ties us into his last thesis which is uh, all about class consciousness and this is as close as he comes to basically like wrapping it all up um i suppose we should say Maybe he does eventually wrap it up in the other three essays he has in this book. Um, who's to say? Mm. Not me, that's for sure. Um, but he basically talks about class consciousness as something that obviously develops and it, you know goes through these peaks and these troughs. Um, but that the way that you recognize the proletariat can be in the universality of its interests. In that, um, and something that I really thought was fascinating. And this is an idea we've come across a lot before, though. It's just this idea that like the proletariat is the only class that can see itself for what it actually is and can actually kinda of, like do something about its circumstances because the bourgeoisie can't, right? Like it is inherently conservative because it needs to it you know, it's it just basically operates along the law of value. It operates because it needs to accumulate, it needs to do this, it needs to do that, not necessarily realizing that they're uh, I don't know who said this, but that they're their own gravediggers, right? Um, the proletariat, it has these radical needs, as he says in the beginning, and it because of those radical needs, it's the only class that can be progressive. He has a pretty bummer line at the end of it where he said something along the lines of, hey, if socialism gets defeated, everything is fucked. <laughs> Civilization will just fall backwards. Um because this is the only class that uh, can do something about it. And this ties him back to his discussion of when Marx was trying to develop this abstract nature of a class that could do something. Um, how can we change the world by looking at the people who need to change the world and the people who have to change the world because the material lives depend on it. These are qualitative needs, right? And this speaks against reform because it's like, Reform is a quantitative need. It's a, it's a like, hey, how much more health care can we give the person? All they need is the good health care and the better wages, and they'll be fine. Give them a better four hundred one k or whatever. Socialism, <coughs> socialism, in as far as that is the need of the proletariat, um, is qualitative. It's a complete change. It's not one that can just be you know, you can't just kind of keep sliding over some crumbs and hope that eventually that turns into a loaf, if you know what I'm saying. Um, a complete change needs to happen. And so maybe if we're looking for agency in the modern world, we look at who has these qualitative needs and um, understand that this is some these needs exist uh, not just in a vacuum, but they have a temporal aspect to them. And so that, uh, fingers crossed, Maybe one day, hopefully one day soon, we'll see all of these needs that all are the same need come together from, as he says, towards the beginning, like Lagos to Los Angeles to, what um, was the other one? Well, the other one. <laughs> I, think, I think he just says like East Asia or something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think my favorite part of this whole essay is in this class consciousness section. Mm. Um, and he's talking about the, the goals of socialism, Um, and he's saying that sort of what we were talking about when we were just talking about culture and sort of like whether the proletarian culture is to like give people equal access to things that they're denied or whether it's to actually build the consciousness of the future kind of thing whether it's like ameliorating what they're deprived of in capitalism whether they're actually extending beyond capitalism And he's talking about the goals of socialism being not um, redistributive justice or uh, solving income inequality or developing shared prosperity which would kind of would be kind of like aspirations internal to Mm. sort of like capitalist mode of production kind of thing it's like we want to be equal under these particular grounds but rather he he extends the aspirations of socialism to uh much more to meeting much more radical needs and he implies that these radical needs kind of come out of the working class's experience of the class struggle itself not only of their experience of living under capitalism and of fighting under capitalism, but also their experience of fighting together and being together, of creating this alternate culture and this alternate way of existing. And by virtue of starting to think about this alternate culture and living this alternate culture, they then begin to realize what kind of things they're deprived of under capitalism. And so he's talk, he sort of goes on to talk about these radical needs which aren't really answerable, yeah. but you could not meet them in, by capitalism, couldn't meet these things. They can't meet like people's requirement for community, or their need for greater human relations, or their desire to have labor to be to escape the alienated nature of labor under capitalism, and rather make labor like life's prime want, as Marx said. Um, and he goes on to talk about like really nice things about like um, the socialist movement, like prefiguring. A, solter- a socialist alternative to like what friendship is, and, like concepts like that, you know. So like, I really like this idea of like there be to sort of like tapping into the prospect of tapping into radical needs that people maybe know that they have, maybe don't even know that they're lacking, um, and that that desire for the future resulting from the ongoing class struggle and a heightening consciousness of the people fighting for the side of the proletariat in the class struggle i suppose mm. i don't know it, it's quite romantic but also it speaks to where i'm at in my thinking at the moment or yeah. <laughs> the things that i think that i need in my life you know or the criticisms that i have of sure. my experience of capitalist society and the atomization and mm. whatever so yeah no um, absolutely yes yeah, one of my one of the nicer sections,
0: yeah. Um, uh, um, amidst all the doom and gloom,
1: yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, this
0: is also just very helpful as a like, well, look how it's been done before, kind of kind of way of thinking about things. And it isn't just like USSR. You know what I mean? It's like actually getting down into the nitty gritty of like, well, how did these develop? And it's interesting because like, I think even though both you and I seem like we wanted more of like an ending, an answer to like, well, how do we develop this agency? Where's where it going to come from if we can't develop it? I think I've realized, in at least I was just talking about it now, that, like, that is an unanswerable question insofar as, like, first of all, just because of the overdetermination of everything. No one no one can understand where these struggles are going to come from or whatever. But just also, just in the nature of the working class itself, it is just, I don't know, especially now where it's, like, at the beginning, the reason I bought up Lagos, Los Angeles, and East Asia is because he basically says these are, like, the new three spheres of uh economic activity or whatever there's super industrial of uh east asia there's the hyper extractive of places like lagos and then there's the like tertiary shitty market economies of like north america and west europe right um and so like the question of like these are all so different. He also adds a fourth, which is really depressing, just like places where migrants come from and refugees come from, which fucking is depressing. But it's like, okay, we look at these three, maybe four different spheres of broad spheres of economic activity with completely seemingly different um, proletariats, right? Um, how how could you possibly answer the question of like, when is this going to come? But if you look at the history and you actually understand the nature, it's like there is this one qualitative need that um, – permeates all of that and it permeates everybody um and you could break it down into a million different needs but you could also just say it's the need for socialism um and then you know that's what we need folks
1: yeah yeah i mean yeah you're right to say that there there is there is perhaps a an, a narrative to this that we may have missed um and it does come from like explaining how it's been done before and explaining the need for it to be done again and also suggesting that there is capacity still for that to happen, you know, like the conditions Mm. are still the same. Um, There's a point really early on when he suggests that maybe in a crude sense, like the reading of the proletariat's agency or role in history is that it's been um, demoted, but it's not been fired. Like it's it's not that it doesn't exist. It's just like uh, not um, as evident at the moment. Mm. Um, And we are in this position where like the the contradictions of capitalism or the, the the class composition of capitalism is such that it's extended all over the world in a way that you can't imagine connecting it together but if we remember in history like very radical uh, consciousness has been built in people in the past through their experience or their joint experience of living under capitalism yeah um so yeah maybe cool. it can be done again maybe well, or not even maybe it can be done again, but yeah. maybe it will emerge again from the conditions um of twenty first century capitalism, mm. I think is more the uh, more the tact of the argument, yeah uh, in this,
0: yeah, and then I suppose another uh bit of business that you can take from this is also how do we build the organizational structures necessary to not only harness that energy but also to encourage it. And also not only to harvest and encourage it, but also to unify it, um, into this single struggle. Um perhaps we should eventually get back into some cybernetic C style stuff, um to maybe come to some conclusions about that or attempt to come to some conclusions about that. Um But yeah, this was really fascinating. I I don't know if I could have taken reading his bits about climate change because I think that would have just been like... Hmm. Now, having said that, there's a ticking clock of like a day. And it's like, oh, (laughs) fuck. We got to sort this out now. But um, I would like to come back to that Kropotkin essay. I know you've talked about it to me quite a bit. um, And I'd uh, like to get to the bottom of it. Hmm. I'd also like to...
1: Is there a section in this essay where he's actually quite sanguine about like the, the prospects of solving the climate crisis... Sort of under socialism, or like the the proletariat's um, attachment to science and scientific understanding, and mm. like I think he's qu- sort of broadly positive about the possibility. Maybe this was mm. me being incredibly po- <laughs> like optimistic. I don't know, or maybe I've just invented that and inserted it into. Maybe it's
0: just that when you produce for utility, you realize what utility is, yeah, And yeah, yeah, its yeah. conservation of a certain yes. extent. Um, yeah, we got to square that circle somehow. Of. Uh, uh hi- the hyperabundance of socialism with the like planet
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> that we yeah, live yeah, on
0: yeah. oh well we'll get Aaron Bastani on to talk about asteroids or something we'll figure it out um yeah this rocked man mike davis dude and another thing just to briefly say I, I i know that one of the theses of some of his stuff in prisoners of the american dream was that like why hasn't there been a labor party in america on the level of the spd or even like the goddamn labor party in britain um and one of his answers is the like lack of solidarity, to put it crudely, between like the different waves of immigrants in the United States. Um, and it was interesting because he kind of came back to that idea generally when he talks about gender equality and when he talks about every other strata you could find in uh, the working class. And that this is when he was talking about how like, you know, uh, like women's struggles, quote unquote, which aren't actually women's struggles, it's like bread to feed families. They're just the face of that have either kicked off revolutions or been huge uh, stepping stones in class consciousness, um, really mirrored that thesis. Um, He's just the man, dude. Like, he's so cool. And he, uh, yeah, I don't know, from a similar part of the world as me. And it's just very odd. It's like, this guy's just existed in Los Angeles. Like, at a certain point in the preface, he was talking about, like, the Communist Party of L.A. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's like the Communist Party of L.A. I didn't even, like, I didn't even thought that there could be a Communist Party that exists in L.A. Just to, like... I don't know, it just makes no sense. It was also cool because he talks about like when I was in the Communist Party of l a um along with rising star Angela Davis, it's like that's cool, <laughs> like imagine being in that room. that's cool, man, yeah mm. smart fellow
1: mm. mm. a saint, a king <laughs> a king <laughs> the and a saint movement. um
0: yeah, he's written some other stuff as well, I know uh. Specifically about Los Angeles, that would be cool to read, just in terms of its, like, he's written some stuff about its ecology, which is really depressing. Um, And it's, you know, he kind of answers the question of, like, why are there always natural disasters happening in L.A.? And it's like, well, maybe don't build on a wetland or, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, some really interesting stuff. Anyways, enough Mike Davis uh, love. Um, New Enigmas, (laughs) Old Gods, New Enigmas. Thumbs up for me, Dan.
1: Yeah, two thumbs up for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very giving. It's very <laughs> uh, uh, readable. It's very mm. enjoyable. Mm. Um, and uh, we haven't touched on most of what's in it, so yeah. definitely go and look it up. Uh, you won't regret it, I don't think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A- anyone who can kind of synthesize Marx's ideas in a readable way, gets like, a thumbs up from me. <laughs> um, all right. I don't think we figured out what we're going to do over the holiday break in terms of output. Um, so just to say, if you don't hear from us, um, or there's nothing in your feed, at least, because we will post something somewhere saying where we've been.
1: Um, I don't know. Yeah. We'll sort it out. We'll see you in the Discord.
0: We'll see you in the Discord. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um,
1: yeah, maybe maybe in a couple of weeks, maybe yeah. the first week of January, we'll be back. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it should and all we've be good. we have no idea what
1: we're going to read. <laughs> so we'll work it out.
0: I mean, this would be the time to decide so we could read something of length.
1: But, yeah. We'll probably
0: wind up reading like a five page essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, big things planned for the new year, right, Dan? Big Mm -hmm. things for this show. Um, All right. That's about that.
1: (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening.
0: Thank you all so much. And Dan, thank you. My name's been Jack. I've had a blast. And uh, yeah. That's about it. That's all I get. So,
1: thank you again, Jack. It's a pleasure as ever. I've been done. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. This has been auxiliary statements. Um, yeah, take care and uh, happy holidays, uh, happy, holidays uh, uh, happy solstice greetings and all the rest. And we
0: we send our solidarity to those of you fighting in the war on sure? <laughs> <laughs> We hope you win. Take that as your alright There you go. Bye.